Everyone has an idea, but is it right? Everyone seems to know what a Christian is, how the Christian life should look, and what kind of place the church should be. But are we even close? What if we could know? What if it looks different than we think? What if what God is building is more than a group of good people, but a community? Join us as we walk through the book of Philippians and see together a beautiful community. of you, if, if you can, grab a Bible and uh, turn in it to the book of Philippians. If you don't own a Bible that's, or don't have a Bible with you, don't worry about it. The text is in your order of worship. But if you don't own a Bible, maybe you're new to this whole thing, maybe Christianity is, is kind of new to you, or, uh, or maybe you do own a Bible, but it was your grandpappy's Bible, and um, y- you have long since been able to understand what those these and thous mean. We have a wonderful gift for you on our, on our Connect table, which is that table in the back with a banner next to it. It's, it's a Bible that you probably can understand, and we'd love to give that to you, okay? Uh, you don't have to grab that now, although you can if you want to, um, but any way that you can have the text in front of you, it's going to be a blessing to you. So, um, look, it's good to be back with you. Uh, I was out of the pulpit last week. Thank you, Jason, for filling in for me uh, so adequately. It's, it's great to have the freedom to be able to do that and know that things are going to go really well here. Uh, and so, uh, let me remind us what we're doing. So we're working through the New Testament book of Philippians. Uh, we're doing so under the premise that the Apostle Paul, that's the dude who wrote this book, that he is writing to the Philippians to help them understand what it will mean to be the church, what it will mean to be God's people in the midst of a world where they have been, where, where everyone else has a completely different set of um, values, uh, operating principles, like presuppositions assumptions that go into how to live life. And so initially, what we saw a few weeks ago is that Paul says that this is going to look like imaging the Savior, imaging Jesus, who uh, was willing, though he was, um, though he is, a, is God, was willing to, to leave behind his rights, his, his, uh, his prerogatives, his preferences, and use all of his godhood, all of his power to see others flourish. Right? So Paul is saying it's going to look like that. The church is to be a community mutually doing that for one another. Laying down their pride, their preferences, and their prerogatives for the good of each other. Right? We call that around here a, a cruciform ministry to one another. In other words, shaped like a cross. And last week, Jason talked with us about how we're to work out our salvation, knowing that it's God working in and through us. And this week, we kind of further fleshed that out by seeing that our salvation isn't simply getting rid of our guilt. That would be great, but, you know, let's be honest, some of us in this room don't feel guilty. So what do we do with that, right? It's not just getting rid of our guilt, it's actually ushering us into a family. So if you have your place in Philippians, we're in chapter 2. If you'd stand, that's our habit here. Uh, In honor of God's word, we're going to be reading Philippians 2, verses 14 to 18. And before we do, let me just remind us, the Bible says of itself that it is, God's word that is living and active. That means that what we're about to do is not just kind of read an antiquated message to an, to an antiquated people. We're about to engage with a living God who speaks to us uh, and, and actually begins to actively work in our lives. Let's hear it in that way. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. 
For even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. God's word for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, you know our stories. That every person in this room is a story. Every story matters to you because you wrote it. You know what brought us into this room this morning. You know what we're bringing with us. You know the, the difficulties that are going on in our hearts. Even the, even the, the most uh, ready to hear from you this morning, Lord, we are bent by nature away from you and we need the power of the Spirit to come and to work in us even now. And, and not only do we need your spirit to hear, but Lord, uh, we need your spirit to believe. And so we pray that you would be working to, to help us to hear, to help us believe. Lord, let, let that even work in the one who speaks because, Lord, you know my story and my needs and how much this message is probably more for me than anyone else. You are good and we give you uh, the praise this morning. We ask that you would Bless this time that you would let Christ and all that he has done come to the fore. Let everything else, including the one who's speaking, fall to the wayside. Because, Jesus, you alone hold the words of eternal life. And we ask all these, in, these things in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. <clears throat> so, when I was in between my junior and senior years of college, um, I... I, I was involved in college because I became a Christian in college and, and became involved with the group that helped lead me to come to know Jesus. That was, uh, at the time, had a different name. Now it's called Crew. Uh, and, and between my, my junior and senior years, I did a domestic summer mission trip with them. They call it a... Uh, a um, I'm blanking. Rude. Uh, help me. So, it's not called a summer mission. But <laughs> anyway, we did a summer mission trip with Crew. It was a 12-week experience. And... Um, and so what it was, was you went to suffer for Jesus on a beach, and I know that, that sounds terrible, but as you're, as you're there, you're working, and, um, and, and then you're sharing Christ with folks in your, in your free time, and, and hopefully um, all the time. And so I was one of the student leaders on this trip, and at the end of all of this, as we're coming up to the end, about two weeks from the end, all of the students had to fill out these, um, you know, kind of kind of feedback forms of what the trip was. And I will never forget, as, I'm, as we're gathered, there's six of us student leaders, we're all gathered, and we're, we're kind of going through what we did, what, what went well, what, went, what didn't go so well, and we're looking at the feedback. And I will never forget one of these, thing, these forms in which one young woman wrote, um, and I'm pretty sure this is a quote, I just wish God would leave me alone for a little while. And she said that because she had felt so challenged over the summer, so disrupted, so kind of forced to change that she was just like, can I just have a break from my stuff? I just need a break from my stuff. Let me be honest with you. That is where I am this morning. As I studied this passage this week and the meaning became clear, it was was just another instance in in my own life of the Lord kind of pushing on me, pursuing me, chasing me down with all this stuff. And at the end of it, it was kind of like, God, can you just give me a break for a little bit? Because you see, I had thought that this passage was kind of an injunction, a command for Christians not to complain (laughs) or argue, and, and it is not. Instead, it is the challenge of, a f- of faith before our failed expectations 
And it is the power of love to conquer our shame. And so we're going to look at this in just two ways this morning. As always, uh, there's an outline to help you follow along if you need that. If you don't, just leave it. But we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at an unblemished wandering, and then we're going to look at an unblemished identity. Okay? Let's get started. Now look, here's my proviso at the beginning. I know some of us here do not believe a lick of the Bible, right? That's cool. You don't have to believe the Bible to be in this place, okay? Uh, I also know that some of us here think we believe it. And by that, we would say, yeah, yeah, I believe it. But when it comes down to, like, actually impacting our lives, impacting the way we live, impacting how we do what we do or what we do, it it doesn't, which probably means we don't really believe it. We just like to say that we do. Um, What I want you to see this morning, no matter where you're at, is that this book, written so long ago, actually does speak to issues that aren't Christian. They're not even religious issues. They're just human issues. Let me, let me show you, because you probably don't believe me. Look down at verse 14. Paul says this. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Okay? So, here's the thing. As we get into this, my kids have this CD that puts uh, Bible verses to music. I know we're that family. It's okay. Uh, but so, so, we have this CD, uh, but it, it covers this verse. And, and of course, you know, it, before it begins with the, the song, it, it kind of gives an introduction, some kind of like dramatic introduction of some kind. And what it has, it has these two kids arguing with each other. I don't even remember what it's about. They're arguing about something. And then, um, and then one of them says, guys, don't you remember? The Bible says do everything without complaining. And then, it's a, and then the music starts, and it's da-da-da-da, right? <sighs> That's what this sounds like, right? Don't grumble. Don't argue. Don't complain. It's like the church lady saying this thing to us. And, and, and frankly, that sounds, for some of us who are really suspicious here this morning, and there's some of us here, that sounds like what we'd expect power to say to us, right? Stop complaining. Stop complaining. Everything's fine around here. Quit your complaining. That, that, that's what we think the Bible has to say to us. But frankly, that has nothing to do with what Paul is communicating. And that phrase instead, do everything without grumbling, uh, has everything to do with the story of the Bible, right? So let let me review that really quick. So after humanity broke the world, that's within the first three chapters of the book. You get that far in, you've already known everything's messed up. So you're three chapters in, humanity breaks the world. And we do it by betraying God. We turn away from him. I know that most of us have come to believe that sin is breaking rules. Uh, it's not. It's, it's betraying a person. It's breaking a relationship. Uh, and so uh, we, we, uh, we betray God. Again, that's what the Bible calls sin. But God promised to fix it. He promised to rescue us from that. And as the Bible progresses, as it goes through the story, he ends up choosing this dude named Abraham. Actually, his name's Abram at the time. God changes his name. Long story. But he chooses this guy. We'll call him Abraham. And he says that it's going to be through your family that I'm going to fix things. That I'm going to fix the world through your family. Now, Abraham isn't worshiping him. He's not, he doesn't follow God. He's, he's in some, the city of Ur following some Sumerian God at the time, or maybe multiple ones. Uh, but God chooses him, grabs him, and says it's going to be through your family that the world will be blessed, through, uh, that it will be rescued. And Abraham's family eventually gets bigger and bigger and ends up in Egypt. Again, long story, you can read it. Uh, but, and, and they're there in Egypt for 400 years, and in the midst of that, they become enslaved. Right? They become slaves in Egypt and, and, uh, and trapped, like they can't leave. And so God raises up this guy by the name of Moses to lead them out of Egypt in this event that we call the Exodus. Right? Maybe you've seen the movies recently of this, but it was, it was a big deal. 
the Exodus is huge, right? Here's the, the most powerful empire of the, of the time, right? The most powerful empire of the time, and God comes in and does all these miracles where he basically puts them to shame. Finally, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, lets them go. They get to the Red Sea where Pharaoh's army is chasing them. God parts the sea, right? You've heard the story. God parts the sea. They walk across on dry ground, and then he closes the water, waters over Pharaoh's army. So these same people, these same people that watched all the miracles in Egypt, they come to the Red Sea, it was wet, now it's dry, they walk across, Pharaoh's army doesn't, uh, catastrophe. They're, they're traveling towards the land that God had promised Abraham and his family. And several times in the midst of this journey, and one very poignant time, we are told that they grumble against the Lord. Which is the same word that Paul uses here. The same word in the original. And the worst of these times happens when they come to the border of the land. They, they come all the way through Egypt, all this wandering. They come to the border of the land. They send some dudes in. They say, scout this out for us. Guys come back. They're like, dude, you know, dudes are really big over here. And they got big walls and everything's crazy. And, and they come to the land. They say, we aren't going into it. Because God can't deal with the kings that live there. God can't, right? I know I know what he did in Egypt. God can't help me now. He can't. Here's why this matters. Paul is talking about this kind of thing when he talks about grumbling. He's not talking about arguing. He's not talking about complaining. He's talking about grumbling. And, and that the idea of grumbling, what was going on with the Israelites, what Paul is worried about in the Philippians is the idea of, of judging God. Judging God and refusing to trust him because he hasn't met our expectations. Mm. That's a little different than complaining, isn't it? Judging God because he hasn't met our expectations. And the other word that I think is, is translated disputing in, in the ESV, that, that is always used in the Bible to talk about anxious doubts. Sometimes even evil thoughts. But anxious doubts is probably the best way to think of it. Now, when I say anxious doubts, I don't mean like having some doubts, right? All of us have doubts, right? I'm a pastor. I have doubts. Uh, that, that's not what I'm talking about. We're talking fearful doubts. We're like, like looking at God and, 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 and kind of saying, I, I don't know, man. I don't know if you're enough. Because you see, faith ultimately is about placing our weight on the weight of our hopes on the Lord. The weight of our hopes on God. And fearful doubts are those that say, I'm afraid he's not really that good. I'm afraid his love isn't really that free. I'm afraid his promises aren't really that reliable. Both of these words, grumbling and disputing, aren't about us. It's about us and God. It's about refusing to have faith. And that's not an ancient problem, is it? That's not an ancient problem. That's our problem, right? Because some of us are here this morning and God hasn't come through for us like we expected him to. We had a, we had a plan for our lives and this is the way it's supposed to work and God didn't come through for us. Other, others of us are staying pretty distant from God because we're simply too afraid to place our faith in him. Because of fear that he's not going to come through. Now, I know that some of us here this morning are like, that's not me, Rick. Like, I have intellectual issues with the faith. And, uh, you know, that's, that's probably true. You, you probably are the exception. 
But, but my experience has been that many times, okay, and this was true of me when I had great intellectual, I thought I had the best intellectual arguments. But many times, intellectual arguments against Christianity have more to do with God not meeting our expectations of what we think should happen, how we think he should act, should be, than just getting a question answered. Which question do you think you absolutely have to have answered before you can have faith? Is it really? Is it really a question? Paul is saying, do all things in faith. Do all things with the kind of trust that comes from seeing what God has done to rescue us in Christ, realizing that, that he has met our deepest needs, solve our greatest problem by the finished work of Jesus freely offered to us in the gospel. That's what it means when he says, do everything without grumbling or disputing. Okay? And when we do this, Paul says, we become children. Look down at verse 15. He says, so that, right, in order that, with the result being that you might be, be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as light in the world. Now stop there. If you're reading this and you're thinking like, some of you are like, this is one of those things that I, I hate about Christians they think they're so good, right? Because you see these words and it's like, blameless, innocent, children. Let me just be honest, like, there's no one in this room who would be a taker on that. Like, blameless? Anybody? No, I didn't think so. Innocent? Mm, didn't think so. Like, that doesn't, that doesn't come up. Look, if you've been to churches where people have pretended that they are awesome as God is lucky to have them, you have been around a bunch of people pretending because it is a lie. Straight up. God forbid you ever experience that in this place. But he still says it. Blameless, innocent, children of God. And, and here's the thing. That's the gospel, friends, so we need to hear it. Remember what I said a few minutes ago, that God promised he would rescue the world through Abraham, through his family. The problem was, Abraham's family, and no different than our family, is jacked. Like, his family was jacked up like the rest of us. And a drowning person cannot save another drowning person. That's what we are. The Bible says that we are that we are lost, that by nature, by nature we are bent away from God, that we are broken. We are guilty before God because of sin. But sin isn't simply what we do. If you hear nothing else this morning, hear that. Sin isn't what we do. It's who we are. It's what, it's what we are. We betray God because we are betrayers. We sin because we are sinners. Our behaviors spring from our being. They spring from our being. And that's what Jesus meant when he said that bad trees don't produce good fruit. Can't get good fruit from bad trees. If you want good fruit, you've got to get a good tree. All the bad fruit's ever going to give you is bad fruit. Or bad trees only, only, only going to give you bad fruit. He says you've got to change the tree. So if we are to become blameless and innocent, that's what he said, even though we are guilty before God, something crazy has to happen. And that's where Jesus comes in, Right? If you're new to Christianity, this is, this is where it all comes together. This is why the central message of Christianity is called the gospel, which isn't a, a genre of singing. It's, it's, a, it's, called, it's good news. Good news. News proclaimed. We are guilty, but Jesus isn't. He lived perfectly before God in perfect dependent relationship with him. But he also died to bear the consequences of our betrayal. He died in our place. Now, here's the great thing about Christianity. When, our pla when we place our faith in Jesus, it isn't so that he will show us the way to get to God. Like, okay, I trust Jesus to show me the way. No, no, that's not it at all. We trust Jesus is the way. 
He is the way to God. We trust Jesus alone. The, the Protestant reformers had this great little Latin phrase called, it, it was called solus Christus, that, that it is in Christ alone. And when we do that, when we trust in him, we are united to Jesus so that what is true of him becomes true of us. And no takers in this room on being blameless, but you know who would take up that? Jesus. And nobody, nobody in this room is willing to raise their hand and say innocent. You know who would have? Jesus. And who was it that was declared the Son of God? Jesus. When we tr- put our faith in him, what is true of him becomes true of us. It is declared before God to be true of us so that, so that his death for sin becomes our death for sin. His life perfect life becomes reckoned to us as ours before God. And so it's not about what we do, how good we can be, how many strikes we can get off of our record. It's about what Jesus has done and that alone. And that is awesome. But it is not all that Paul is talking about here. As a matter of fact, that's like, it's the way to get to what Paul is talking about. Because having faith doesn't just make you forgiven, it makes you family. We are adopted into God's family, right? That's what he says there. You may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. Now, that statement without blemish, again, looks back to the Exodus. Paul is just kind of swimming in the Exodus this morning. Swimming in that moment. And so, in Deuteronomy, that's the fifth book of the, New, of the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, chapter 32, verse 5, Moses is singing. He's singing about all that God has done, and specifically about this generation we just talked about, right? The grumblers? They were grumbling at the shore. Getting ready to move into the land. And he says this, they are no longer his children because they are blemished. Now here's the thing. When you and I hear blemish, we tend to think about something we've done, right? I mean, let's be honest. It's something we've done. But the blemish here isn't their behavior. It's that they haven't placed their faith in him. In other words, what kept them from being children, when when Moses says they're they're no longer children, what kept them from being children was that they didn't place their faith in God to rescue them. They grumbled. So, So faith doesn't just remove our guilt, which would be awesome. It also removes our blemish. We are loved, we are accepted, and brought into God's family by faith, not by figuring it out. Trust, not trying harder. By being reconciled, not being religious. And when we do that, in the midst of a world bent away from God, Paul says we become lights. Did you see that? Among whom you shine as lights in the world. You see, God's people aren't just meant to bask in blessing. We are meant to be carriers of that blessing to the world. Jesus said it, right? We heard, we heard uh, Brandon read that, you're the light of the world. Paul says it here. Isaiah said it, like in the Old Testament, it's it's all over the place. God's people are called to bring light into darkness. And here's how. Paul says we're going to do that. Beginning of verse 16, he says, holding fast to the word of life. That word that Paul is talking about is, of course, the scriptures. In particular, it's talking about the gospel, the the good news. uh, The good news of the finished work of Jesus to answer God's promise and to rescue us from the world. Okay? Now, let's finish this passage and we're going to apply it. So let's finish the passage by looking at rejoicing in faith. Because this section, right, the end of verse 16 into verse 18 can be a little confusing. Paul's talking about being poured out. 
It's talking about some sacrificial offering of faith. Like, what is that about? Um, it's talking about running in vain. It's hard to get your hands around it, so let me try and simplify it a little bit. Remember what Paul is speaking about at the beginning. Grumbling. What is grumbling? Grumbling is about, is about uh, failed expectations. And so Paul is encouraging the Philippians to faith this church in Philippi, these people saying, have faith in light of your failed expectations, right? And all of us have those, don't we? It doesn't, doesn't really work if you don't. Like, yes, you do. We all have those. Some of us came to Jesus under the promise. I don't know who made this promise to us. But, but it was a promise, or, or at least some kind of assurance, that, that doing so would make us happy all the time, or make us rich, or make things go smoothly for us, heal our bodies, right? But now we aren't healed, we aren't rich, we struggle with depression, life is chaotic, and we're like, dude, let me down, right? That's a real thing. The problem, though, is that when we've done that, what we've done is we've come to Jesus wanting him to give us what we really want. We use him as a method to get what we really want, right? So, so uh, he offers us reconciliation for, with God. He offers us what we were made for, and all we wanted was money or health. But here's the thing. God is not a genie, and the gospel is not about making your life better. It may get better, but like Paul, right, when he... When he's writing this letter, is in jail, a Roman jail, not an eight by eight, like a Roman jail in stocks. Second Corinthians, another letter that Paul writes, he tells us about his, his he lays out this great, um, what, what he thinks qualifies him to be an apostle, to be one of the, the mouthpieces for the risen Lord Jesus, and he includes in that thing, in, in that, things like um, being beaten with 40 lashes, by being shipwrecked, by being despised and poor and hungry. And he says, yes, all of that happened, but I had Christ. So Paul saw Jesus as worth all those things because Jesus loved him and gave himself for him. So Paul is saying, stay close to Christ who takes your guilt, who takes your shame, who makes you a son or daughter of God and cling to his word. Cling to the gospel, he's saying, instead of the substitutes of self-help spiritualities. Even, might I say, the substitutes that claim that all you really need is to get more of Jesus. As if he's like some currency you can kind of collect more of if you do enough. Or, or the substitutes that say that everything would go well in your life if you just add a little more faith. You could just get your faith right, man. God would come through for you. That is a lie. If the Apostle Paul didn't have enough faith to avoid beatings and jail, do you think you or I have a chance? No. If the Lord Jesus himself, <laughs> now that's where it hits the ground, isn't it? If the Lord Jesus himself, being the very Son of God, went to a cross, suffered, and died, do you think you can avoid it? Just enough faith? Maybe you can have more faith than Jesus. I'll leave that to you. If Paul says, cling to the gospel instead of these things so that all of his work might not be in vain, so that, he says, we might rejoice together no matter what happens to me. So that's our passage. Now I want to try and bring this a little closer to home for us if I can. Let's talk about the identity. 
There's so many ways we could go about this. I just want to touch two. And the first is removing our blemish. I love the fact that in this passage, two things are kind of set opposed to one another. One of them is this word blemish, and the other is the concept of adoption, being made a child of God. And I love that because I struggle with that. Maybe you do too. Because you see, adoption, and some of you have adopted kids, so you know this, um, adoption is all about, if you're the child, being accepted, being wanted, being welcome, right? Think about it. Adoption is that a parent chooses a child, like chooses them, chooses them and then welcomes them into their family. It's beautiful. So we have adoption on one hand, then we have blemishes. Blemishes over here, like a blemish. What do we do with our blemishes? We hide them. We hide them because we're ashamed of them. I don't care if it's a physical blemish or one that's not so much. Blemishes are those things in our lives that we have that we think, if they knew this, they could never love me. They could never accept me. They'd never respect me, couldn't choose me, would never adopt me. So let me ask you, friends, what is your blemish? What is the thing that you hide from others and try to cover up before God out of that kind of fear? Look, maybe for you, it's, it's, um, it's an addiction to pornography. Or sexual desires you don't know what to do with. Or, or maybe that you know very much what to do with them. Maybe it's things you've done in the past. Maybe it's things that have been done to you in the past. Ways that you've been victimized. Maybe it's that you can't go through a day without a drink or a hit. Maybe it's how you view yourself because of things said over and over to you when you were younger. Maybe, for some of us, it's just the reality that we're finite and can't meet everyone's expectations. And that's not okay for us. And you cover these things up because if people found out, then they couldn't accept you. They couldn't love you. You hide these things because God could never love somebody like that. Does that sound familiar? It does to me. But listen, because this is what I need to hear, and I think it's what you need to hear too, and it comes right from this text. The only blemish that Paul talks about here, the only one, has nothing to do with your behavior. Nothing. That blemish, that thing that keeps you from God's family, that keeps you from from full acceptance, isn't, isn't whatever failure or issue you've got, or that I've got. It's not coming to Christ. You're broken. Of course you are. And so am I. And, and if you weren't, if I wasn't, Jesus wouldn't have come. I know it's hard to believe. I know you think you're the exception. I know you do because so do I, and we can't both be. So, you know. But God came in Jesus to purchase you with his blood. Listen to me. God came in Jesus, the Bible says over and over, to purchase you. To purchase you with his blood. He knows what he bought, and he doesn't have buyer's remorse. 
The work of Christ is enough not just to remove our guilt, but our shame. That's where those anxious doubts come into play. Let go of them. He's enough. It is time to bring that shame into the light and see that you are loved by God and accepted because of Christ. And so in Jesus, your blemish is removed. Lastly, I want to talk about being living lights. And I want to say that because once we wrestle with and grapple with the notion that not just we're forgiven, but we're welcomed into a family and, and, and accepted fully by God, this, this idea of being a living light makes perfect sense. The problem is, is that we often put it first, and so it's misunderstood. So let me explain. How do we live as lights? Let me suggest a few ways. First and foremost, to be a light in the world presupposes you are in the world. Let me say that again. Being a light in the world presupposes, Christian, that you are in the world. A light can't be recognized as light if it's in a bright room, right? If I go light a candle after church today out in the noonday sun, you barely can see it. But if you're in cave dark and you light that sucker up, you go, oh, that's what a light is. God calls us to be a blessing to the world, and we can't be that if we aren't there. So here's what I would say this morning. If you don't have relationships with non-Christians, it is time to get some. Because the light needs somewhere to shine. And listen, friends, that doesn't mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not just talking to adults on that, right? Kids, especially, especially if you've claimed those covenant promises for yourself, followers of Jesus. It's just as easy to make friends on the, on the playground as it is for your, your parents. Probably easier, in fact. The light needs somewhere to shine. Second, being a light will mean expecting the world to be dark. Okay, listen close on this one. Because so often it seems that Christians seem to look around at the world and then take to social media or they get in groups to rail against how dark the world is. How evil everything is. Now, this rarely leads to prayer or anything like that, right? It's simply a griping session. Listen to me closely. Listen, this is, this is really close. I need you to clue in. If you walk into a room and you flip the switch and it stays dark, you don't yell at the dark, do you? Hmm. You don't yell at the dark like, I can't believe you're still dark. I flipped the switch. You go, what happened to the light if the world is dark, friends, and Christians are called to be the light of the world, whose fault is it? Where's the problem? It's not the dark. Light's not shining. The light's not shining. We need to look in the mirror and ask why. Why is the world so dark? Maybe it's not their fault at all. But lastly, we need to stick close to what it is that makes us the light of the world. Because if you just say, okay, I'm going to get in the world and I'm going to be a light and I'm going I'm to stop griping about it and I'm going I'm to be the light in the world, then what you end up thinking is what makes me a light in the world is I'm just good. I can just go be good around all my friends and we're, we're going to be good. I'm going to go into my coworkers and be like, good. And they're going to be like, man, you're so good. And it's like, yeah, you want to come be good like me? 
Doesn't that sound great? The answer would be no. Okay? This is why Paul, Paul follows this up about being lights in the world with this. Holding fast the word of life. I can't get into the grammar a ton, but it's a dependent clause. In other words, the being a light in the world is this, this holding fast is like intimately connected with this. We can easily fall into the belief that what makes us the light of the world is how good we are, how responsible we are, how we vote, how much truth we know, how many Bible verses we can repeat. You, you kind of fill in the blank, right? Paul is clear that being a light is about the gospel. That's why he says hold fast to the word of life. The word of life. Rules aren't life, are they? When's the last time your New Year's resolution was life to you? Never. Never. What makes you a light in the world is Jesus and his work. He is the light. We take him into the world. So know your Bible. Please know your Bible. But know it as the story that points to Jesus. Know truth in theology. Look, if you know me, you know I'm a heady dude. Know your truth in theology. Please do it. But know it as truth that draws you to worship Truth that draws you to thankfulness for Jesus and what he has done. Please do live lives that reflect the moral vision of the New Testament, okay? Please do that. But live it as a life of thankfulness for being accepted by God. Not under the delusion that it's what makes you acceptable to God. Friends, we live by faith in the one who not only removes our guilt but our blemishes. Removes our shame. And because of that, we can live fully for others as lights to draw others to encounter him, to know him, and then to show him as well. Would you pray with me? Lord, it is, it is a truth that is beyond imagining that you could actually remove our blemish. And that, in fact, any blemish before you actually has nothing to do with what we've done or how we've been rejected or used. or It's just it's whether or not we're going to trust in you. And if anyone in this room is anything like me this morning, Lord, we are struggling right now to even begin to allow our hearts to even crack an inch to let that truth penetrate. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be working right now. I pray you'd be working in me. I pray you'd be working in my friends here to let the gospel find good soil this morning. And I pray, Lord, that as you help us to wrestle more and more with a, a love that's that fierce, that committed, that gracious, that, Lord, that would move us into our workplaces, our neighborhoods, even our families, to proclaim that kind of gospel to others, because if, it, if it's good enough for us, it can be good enough for anyone. Do this to make your name great, and do this, Lord, so that we might be all that you've called us to be. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.